Hi, everybody. It's Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. I have David Howden, Assistant Professor of Economics at St. Louis University in Madrid. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks, Stefan. So, Europe is quite the center of activity in the media and uh, among people who are interested in economics these days. I was wondering, I mean, I, my understanding is that there's three general causes of the European euro crisis at the moment. I mean, the first is crazy social welfare and deficit finance spending, which is true of all over the world. And the second, of course, is the more recent and uh, proximate financial crisis from 2008 onwards. And the third appears to be just the general decay of demographics. I was reading somewhere that, that Greece has a fertility rate of 1.2 or 1.3, which is just way below what is needed to replenish. And so you've got this big bulge of people heading into retirement. Uh, are those the major factors that you see? Are there other factors that, that I'm not aware of? Well, those I think that hits it pretty well on all the heads. I don't think the demographic factors I downplay a little bit. I don't think they're they are important, but they're not important until sometime in the future. The one, the one today, I think more is just the. There's two questions I suppose to answer. The first is where the crisis came from, and the second is why it's prolonging, and that identifies fairly well where the crisis came from. So just too much deficit spending and and uh, unsustainable policies, social policies in the past. But I think when we look at why it's lasting or continuing, it's more of a problem of um, continued continued muddles in the economy, and especially continued. Uh, monetary muddling by the ECB. Now, the two aspects of, uh, at least in America, I think the two aspects that are threatening to prolong the current recession into a Japanese-style multi-decade uh, decay is uh, um, the, I mean, of course, artificially low interest rates. Uh, you have massive bailouts in the economic sector, and uh, you have the overprinting of money uh, through these uh, <clears throat> quantitative easing measures. Uh, have those been pursued? And they haven't really pursued, I live in Canada, we haven't really pursued the quantitative easing, so to speak, and there's not been much bailouts and so on. So we actually got out of the recession fairly quickly. What is the European approach to the recession and and uh, how is it affecting the, the length of it? Well, in a lot of ways, the European approach is even, I think, more extreme than the American approach, although it might not seem like it on the on first appearance. So in America, you saw much more quick and immediate quantitative easing. The numbers were, of course, massive. And in, uh, in the European situation, it becomes a little bit more complicated because it varies country to country. And the numbers maybe don't add up to as large as they were immediately in the States. But as it wears on, we keep adding more and more billions and trillions are becoming the new billions, apparently. Um, so it's becoming quite a, quite a concerted effort in, on, in just sheer numbers or in sheer money terms. And it seems that every solution that is put forward, and I mocked this roundly in a recent show, but it seems that every solution that is put forward simply involves more deficit financing. And it seems to me, you know, uh, this may be naive, uh, ignorant, out of the, you know, inside the box economic thinking, but it seems to me somewhat ridiculous and naive to imagine that a debt crisis can be financed or solved by deficit financing, which of course is just another form of debt. Am I, am I missing something obvious? No, I think that's pretty obvious. You can't solve it. If you think debt is the problem, then heaping on more debt isn't going to provide the solution, I don't think. The, the problem was uh, it was a misidentified crisis from the start by most people. So the prevailing opinion was we're in a crisis of illiquidity, not, a, uh, not insolvency. 
So if markets are illiquid, we'll just provide more liquidity to them, increase the, the money supply, for example, or increase credit, and that'll fix that problem. And slowly... It's, 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 sorry, this is just a basic Keynesian prime the pump kind of thing, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's what it would boil down to. And now I think we're most people are on side at identifying that the crisis is more one of insolvency. So in Greece, this is especially apparent, uh, and it's becoming more increasingly apparent in, in Portugal or, or Ireland or even countries that are closer to the core, although still peripheral, I suppose, like Belgium, Italy, and, and Spain. Now, a lot of people are having trouble understanding why the old remedies didn't work prior to the unification of the currency under the euro. Uh, countries had remedies uh, with devaluing of currency. Uh, how would that help them in this situation and uh, what, what's happening now that they, they don't have that option? Well, Greece, use Greece as a really good example. Greece is in a situation where it has way too much debt. It's insolvent in the sense that there is no way that Greece could ever pay off the amount of debt that it has right now. Uh, it's non-competitive in the sense that its costs are too high relative to any other European country or most other countries, at least in the Western world, um, based on the fact that it's locked into this currency union with one exchange rate provided via the euro that it has to share with every other eurozone country. So in Greece's case in the past, the solution would have been painful still, although it would have been a solution. They could have inflated their way away, uh, inflated their problems away. That would have taken care of the debt problem. And it also would have devalued the currency so that they could have become a little bit more um, competitive. Right now, the problem for them, or, or one problem, I suppose, is their hands are tied because they don't have this uh, policy option available to them. I, I'd probably point out, I, I think this is a double-edged sword. It's almost, it's a, it's a cost and it's a blessing to them as well. So it's beneficial in the it, well, I'll start with the cost. It's, of course, uh, negative in the sense, like I just pointed out, that there's no real solution for Greece to get out of this uh, crisis short of exiting the euro. It's a blessing in disguise at the same time for most Greek people uh, that the government isn't just able to inflate their problems out of this and we don't have an inflation crisis in Greece right now like we could have in the past. Well, and of course, <clears throat> inflating the currency is particularly tragic for people who are on fixed incomes because, of course, the value of their purchasing drachma, I guess it would be, uh, sort of evaporates slowly. Whereas if there's more of a hard – I mean, that's really a soft default. You're basically saying you can't pay your bills except with monopoly money, just the same as saying you can't pay your bills. But with a hard default, the pain tends to be much more specific and, and not generalized to the whole population. It tends to hit, of course, the, the, the creditors and, and the financial in, uh, institutions, which I think people would feel is, is more fair. Is, is there any talk of, I mean, I know that they're talking about with this bailout that they're getting a 50% haircut on Greek bonds. Is there, uh, what is the perception about who should pay for Greece? Is it the general population? Is it the financial institutions? Well, I think uh, there's a general agreement right now that the financial institutions are the ones who should pay. And then we don't really see this happening with most of the policies that are coming forward. So in Greece's case, all of the bailout uh, all of the bailout options, even taking a 50% haircut on Greek debt, is still a bailout to the financial institutions in the sense that that's probably not that much compared to what they would take if the whole country went bust. The The problem is right now, if, if Greece is locked in a situation where they can't inflate their problems away and they face bankruptcy, the natural response should be to evade bankruptcy, which in Greece's case would be curtailing the expenditure side of things or limiting your public expenditures. And, and that's the problem that we don't see happening in the country. Everybody talks about about how do we raise revenues, and right now they're doing it through bailouts, and nobody wants to focus on the other side, which is really drastically cutting expenditures so that you can actually get out of this, this bankrupt situation. 
Well, I mean, I'm sure that the politicians would be interested in that approach, but of course, there tends to be a, a lot of reactionary aggression from the population uh, who has grown up in the sort of cocoon of status propaganda about how they can get uh, lunch for free, right? Yeah, well, that's the it's now become a social problem in Greece where you have an entitled society. More than 50% of the population uh, works either directly or vaguely indirectly for the government sector. So now, if you think about that as a tipping point for 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 a democracy, when over half of your vote Voters have a vested interest in, in keeping these types of policies going. They're in, incredibly hard to change. So where do you think this is going to go? I mean, we've, we've out here uh, on the uh, North American continent, we've heard whispers and rumors and murmurs of a supranational uh, government that may be imposed because it's sort of weird. I mean, the, the, the euro was a messed up institution to begin with. But when you have domestic control of policies that affect your competitiveness, but you don't have domestic control of your exchange rates, that just seems like a, a collision waiting to happen. Where, where do you think this is going to go in terms of a, a quote solution? I, I dare dare not say actual solution because that would be more Austrian, but a quote solution. Yeah, well, I, I think there's a, a slow awakening, I suppose, within Europe that maybe this integration project was not so was for starters not as well thought out as people thought it was, and B, maybe it's um, scope is much wider than people think is is feasible. And I hope the solution is going to be, and I I would tend to think that we'll get there eventually, that the scope of the Eurozone will be scaled back. Some countries on the periphery, Greece would be the first example, will have to be let go, if only for the reason that they're in a situation they should never have been in in the first place, because they should never have been part of the Eurozone in the first place. And this is sort of amazing to me. You know, they say that uh, small crime lands you in jail, big crime gets you a crown. Um, it is amazing to me that I think it was it was in the 90s that I think it was Goldman Sachs that helped Greek cook the books to even get into the euro. And there doesn't seem to be any particular desire to go after any of the people to do with that or any of the organizations. Is there any sense of outrage or is that just like, you know, it's water under the bridge. Let's just focus ahead. Yeah, well, I, I think probably what happened, and that's a good point, that nobody right now in this crisis, nobody's really looking at who who got them into this into the eurozone in the first place or who brought on this situation in the first place and we're just dealing with the effects now um but um one significant factor you would think is is having some kind of uh, of um going after the people maybe who who brought on these types of conditions so greece getting acceptance into the eurozone uh, it bewilders me that nobody wants to answer the question or hold anybody accountable for how it is that they actually got into this this uh, into this union based on faulty statistics and, and outright lies in some places. And instead, everybody just wants to deal with the, the more proximal effects that we see today. I suppose it more has to do with the urgency of today rather than uh, dealing with uh, the bygones that are now bygones. Yeah, it's not a lot of political capital creating historical enemies. You need much more contemporary enemies like the Germans. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Now, uh, another question that I have, uh, it seems that um, a lot of the bigger economies, the, the, uh, the yields on the government bonds uh, are crossing over into very dangerous territory. I'm sort of looking at Italy crossing over 6%, which makes their debt, I think, virtually impossible to service. I mean, Portugal's over 10%. Um, where, where is this going? I mean, there's not going to be enough money to bail, bail these countries out. Do you think that there's going to be any kind of uh, banking crisis? Well, I th uh, I'll deal with the questions. Uh, there's two questions there. So the first one is, uh, where is this going on a, on a public sector? It, 
At this point, the European Stability Fund is not large enough to handle every country possible. And if they spend money bailing out smaller countries like Greece, there's definitely not going to be enough able to be committed to the larger countries. And I think in light of this, and there is a realization that this crisis is brewing in the fairly immediate future, people should start considering whether throwing more and more tens of billions of dollars after Greece, which after all in the grand scheme of things is fairly small relative to uh, any other Western European economy is worthwhile. The second question is the, the banking crisis, which is probably more important even in a lot of these countries that we look at. In Spain, I think this is the more important question to look at because Spain doesn't really have a, a public sector uh, budget or deficit crisis in the strict sense of the word. The, the government debt levels really aren't that high by European standards. Their debt to GDP in Spain might be uh, 60, 65 percent, somewhere in that neighborhood. Um, the banking sector, on the other hand, is highly indebted. It's absolutely massive. It's highly unstable because the assets are backed up by uh, basically really worthless mortgages for the most part by uh, provided by the Spanish property bubble. So at some point in time in the future, we're going to have to deal with a real banking crisis, which is really separate from the sovereign debt crisis in the sense that banks are going to realize losses on their, uh, on their assets and won't be able to fund their liabilities. And this is really a problem in the sense that if this coincides with the public sector problem, there's not going to be a public sector there to backstop the banking uh, industry. And I think a lot of people really rely on this. Including sorry, just sorry. Can you just uh, break that last part down a little bit? Do you mean that there won't be uh, a cushion for employment, or there won't be the bailout money? I don't think there's going to be bailout money. Even more severe, I think you could look at it on a, a something like deposit insurance. In, in Europe, deposit insurance is provided nationally by the public, uh, by each nation's government. Um, is Spain in the middle of a uh, well? We'll use Italy in the in the middle of a government budget crisis. Do you think the Spanish government actually has billions of euros lying around? to honor the deposit insurance for its bankrupt banking industry as well. And that's that's severe, and that's something that people don't think about, but they they fully expect it to happen, right? Nobody questions that you have deposit insurance on your banks. And yet I don't think that most of these uh, European governments actually have the funds set aside, uh, not sufficient funds anyway, to honor the, the liabilities of their banking sectors. Yeah, I mean, it's a great tragedy. Uh, deposit insurance is like the morphine that lets your... Uh, toothache turn fatal <laughs> because right. people don't monitor these things because they assume oh well, it's taken care of. That's right, exactly. And it, it, you get it in extremis, or I think we have examples in extremis where not only do you not monitor the the prudence of your bank to make sure it's not doing anything risky, you actually reward banks by by putting your money in the in the ones that give you either the lowest service charges or the highest rates of interest, and those two uh, those two factors coincide with uh, risky lending on the whole. I mean, it's the exact, exact opposite, of course. Uh, risk should go up with speculation. But as you argue, risk is actually going down relative to the value of speculation, which creates a very distorted incentive. Exactly. So, of course, if there is a European banking crisis, then, I mean, there will perhaps, I mean, it's, it's almost hard to imagine that there'll be a run on our banks because that's been generations since that's really been an issue. But people may panic, of course, and the internet allows this information to spread quickly. International trade, of course, will virtually shut down from Europe because you need those, uh, uh, those notes of exchange to swap between banks. What are the other effects that you think will come out of a potential banking crisis in Europe? I'm not sure, actually, that we're not in the midst of an of a electronic banking run right now in Europe. I read the other day... Uh, can't remember the source, and I don't know how credible it is, to be perfectly honest. But it said, uh, "All right, we'll put this in the rumor category." Yeah, exactly. But put this in the rumor category that deposits, demand deposits in Spanish banks are down thirty percent year on year. 
Now, even if we say that that's only a third true, 10% decline is still massive, especially given that I think a lot of people are liquidating riskier investments and holding on cash as they become more and more uncertain during the crisis. In Greece... Well, and sorry, did, if we assume that the, the, Spanish, the Spanish banks are only leveraged 10 to 1, 10% still wipes them out, right? Exa- exactly. Exactly. So, And I mean, in the, in the US crisis, banks were like 30 to 1, so it would not be unusual to expect them to at least be 10 to 1. So they may be effectively insolvent. Exactly. I would, I would uh, on the whole, I would say that banks are even more leveraged than they were in the U.S. So 30 to 1 I don't think is unusual for your average European bank. Um, in Greece, I know it's a fact that uh, electronic uh, transfers have been causing this this e-bank run, if you want to call it that, where deposit holders definitely are shipping their euros out of Greece. One problem, one significant problem is you have this situation where a euro note deposited in Deutsche Bank in Frankfurt is worth the exact same as a euro note which is deposited in, uh, um, I don't know, Athens Bank in Athens. And the fact of the matter is there's at least some expectation that sometime in the future, if Greece has to exit the Eurozone, that Euro which is held in Athens is going to have to be re-denominated into, let's say, a new drachma. And it's not going to be at a favorable exchange rate. And if you have your money still in the country, you're going to lose. So I think we, I know we do have a capital run going on right now from these peripheral countries, people shipping their their accounts and their deposits as much as they can uh, up into more stable core countries. Is there a concern? I don't, even, I don't know even if this would even be possible in the sort of electronic banking world, but uh, there's sort of an old-style South African approach to limiting the amount of credit or, or capital that can exit the country. Do you think there's any capacity for governments to put restrictions on the flight of capital? It's a difficult one within the Eurozone because one of the primary tenants of the zone, one of its building blocks was freedom of movement of labor and capital. So this is a politically difficult measure to put in place. That's not to say that it couldn't potentially be in the cards as the crisis uh, prolongs, I think anything's possible. But right now, I don't think that's possible. Before they do something like that, I would expect almost, uh, to be perfectly honest, I would expect a country to do a wholesale exit from the Eurozone before we saw a capital capital control on a country. I got to imagine, I mean, this is complete wild-ass guess, but I've got to imagine that would be an immediate 20% 20% decline in the standard of living. I mean, it's hard to imagine how that wouldn't just be catastrophic to to the country as a whole. In it probably would in the in the short run I I have no doubt in my mind it would be extremely painful. In the long run I think it's absolutely necessary to to get rid of the imbalances and get rid of the situation that that really caused the problem today. There's one problem when when I read most analyses of the present crisis they say countries aren't going to leave the eurozone because the short-term cost is so high. And the, the, the hit that you're going to have to immediately take just far outweighs whatever cost it would be to just continue bailing out these countries. Even for developed countries like Germany, if Greece were to leave the Eurozone, Germans are going to take a hit, right? The stock market's going to go down, uh, the Euro's going to take a hit on value, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But this ignores the whole cost that we have over the whole, if you bail out Greece and keep them in the Eurozone, this isn't a one-time expense. This is an expense that we could be incurring every single year from now until forever to keep this country a part of this currency union. Well, and of course, if you want people to accept suffering, all you have to do is stoke the fires of nationalism and say, we will not cede control of our system to foreign. I mean, you can get people <laughs> to accept this if you if you make it a kind of economic war metaphor uh, and retain, retention of sovereignty. You can get people to do lots of silly things if you appeal to their nationalism. That would be my guess. Oh, absolutely. So let me ask you, this is, I know we're a little pressed for time and I want to make sure that I get you out the door if you need to go, but uh, it 
of course, nobody's admitting that libertarians have been right all along. Nobody's saying, gosh, let's go talk to those Austrians because they've been predicting this for decades. There's nobody who wants to talk about the causes. If you were, I imagine so you were propelled to a we, – we give you fluent Greek and we propel you to the Acropolis where you announce your, um, your what you want to say to the Greeks or to all of the people in Europe who are struggling from this, uh, this crisis. Uh, what is it that you would say to them? Uh, I know it's a tough question, but in a nutshell, what is it you would say to them in an attempt to sort of wake them up to the causes and remedies that you feel would be uh, rational? Uh, I would say look back at the past decade that you've had and ask yourself whether you thought that this was sustainable, that you would keep living off uh, an unsustainable lifestyle brought on by funds coming in from other European countries, sharing a currency with other countries that didn't match fundamentally the, the, the fundaments of your economy. And then I would say if you're going to wake up, you better recognize that if you want some kind of long-term stable situation that's not going to be prone to, to booms or busts, the, the booms aren't really a blessing either because they seem in this case to, to give rise to the bust, you better be questioning whether joining this political union and getting the transfer funds that came with it was the right decision, and more importantly, joining the currency union and sharing a currency with a stronger economy such as France or Germany was such a wise decision either. Uh, I see swelling music. Uh, I see a topless Lawrence Fishburne delivering that speech from the top of a craggy rock, lightning in the background, and I see people cheering. And hopefully we can get that message across. My, my, I would start with, I'm afraid we've lied to you your whole lives. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Start to unpack it from there. Well, listen, uh, David, I really, really do appreciate your time. I know that you blog for Mises.org. Are there any other places on the web that people can go to get your uh, wit and wisdom? Yeah, at Mises.org and also for a, a wonderful British uh, think tank promoting monetary stability called the Cobden Center. It's available at cobdencenter.org. Well, thank you so much, David. I really appreciate your time. Thanks a lot, Stefan. Bye-bye. Bye.